This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. Over the course of a lifetime, there are lots of little things that we do constantly that in the beginning seemed complicated or difficult and eventually become something that we can do without thinking. I imagine that soon my son will learn to tie his shoes and that for a couple years at least, it will be a very conscious effort. You, know, you sit down and you imagine making a bunny ear, and then you make a bunny ear. It's, sometimes you might get it wrong. I remember uh, accidentally tying my shoes so that I couldn't untie them and feeling very frustrated. But one day, without noticing it at all, we find that we can tie our shoes without any consideration of that act. And so it, it becomes a complicated relationship in that on one hand we've done something so many times that we've actually basically, we've, we've made a synapse just for that in our brain. Right? We've, we've, made, we've used up acreage of our mind for this activity. But in doing that, we've also made it feel kind of meaningless. A lot of Zen practice comes back to this paradox. And I mention this today because, for me, one of these activities is chanting the Heart Sutra. I've chanted the Heart Sutra so many times that it would be foolish to try to guess how many. Uh, in English, a lot, but in Japanese, many, many, many times. It's chanted in Sino-Japanese mostly. It sounds like kanji, saibo, satsu, gyojin. And it's chanted constantly. It's the first thing that you would chant in the morning in a monastery. And then it would be the last thing you chant in the morning in a monastery because immediately after the main service, there's another service that I've talked about when everybody goes to the kitchen area to do a kind of um, uh, let's hope that the building doesn't burn down today ceremony. And what's chanted there is also the Heart Sutra. And where I trained, that was then chanted in, in Japanese, Japanese. So it's a kanji sae bosatsu fukaki hanya haramite niti yoko naishi toki shouken seshini. Like that. It has a very different rhythm. But it's the same content. And then if you go out for takuhatsu, which is the ritual, uh, the alms rounds, you chant it at the beginning. And when you come back, you chant it when you get back. And if you're doing, uh, sometimes that takuhatsu is done walking, but sometimes it's done standing on a street corner. If it's on a street corner, then you stand there and you chant the Heart Sutra a hundred times. And then uh, if you go to visit another temple and you make an offering at that temple, the way that you do that is by chanting the Heart Sutra. And so without much effort at all, you might find that at the end of a normal day, maybe it's been five times. And over a long period, it becomes uh, a kind of noise. And 
This is not necessarily considered negative. We're not encouraged to think about it while we chant it. We're actually encouraged not to think about it while we chant it. Because chanting is chanting and thinking is thinking. And so when you chant, if you're thinking about the relationship between emptiness and form, your chanting will suffer. And so you put that conversation aside and you just commit to this act. But then hopefully, hopefully you do make a time or you do find a time when you can think about it as well. And today I wanted to talk about it a little bit. And as I was putting my notes together, I was realizing we really should just, maybe soon or, or maybe not, we should do a class and use the Heart Sutra as the center of it. Because as you'll see, there's a lot of stuff to unpack. And it's a nice way to talk about classical Buddhism as well as Mahayana Buddhism. But tonight I thought that I would just give you kind of a roadmap of what it is that we're saying and how the pieces fit together. This will be the fastest uh, discussion of the Heart Sutra ever. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajna Paramita. Prajna Paramita is the deepest wisdom. And Avalokiteshvara, as we've talked about many times, is the embodiment of compassion. So this is placed in a story. And the story is that Avalokiteshvara was... I think everybody likes to assume that Avalokiteshvara was doing Zazen. Because it sounds like that. But we don't know that's true. Avalokiteshvara was practicing the deepest wisdom. I don't know. Maybe Zazen. And clearly recognize something. It's important in sutras to have this kind of beginning. It's a way of saying, you know, I'm not the one saying this. I'm just reporting something that happened. And it happened through someone who is so inconceivably uh, wise, so inconceivably knowing in the practice, that everything else that follows is going to be really legitimate. Uh, this, is, this is a tool. Uh, it was probably written about a thousand years after the time of the Buddha, though it's not entirely clear. There are some debates about that. And one of the things that makes it interesting is that it's not attributed to the Buddha, even in the, in the way that it's written. Generally, when we say the word sutra, we, re- we mean something that is a teaching of the Buddha directly. But Zen, in particular, uses the word very liberally. Um, there are a lot of things that we chant in the Zen tradition that, even if we don't put sutra in the title, we then put them under this umbrella of sutras. Now, the Heart Sutra, everyone definitely calls a sutra, but even, even this one, it's not considered to be something that came out of the Buddha's mouth, exactly. It was probably first written in Chinese. This is a great thing about modern scholarship. Most people seem to think that now it was, it was probably written first in Chinese, and then it was back-translated to Sanskrit. Buddhism moved from India to China, and then out into Vietnam and Korea and Japan and Tibet. And 
always in that process, there's, there's a place that you can look back to to say that that's the authentic thing, right? So when you were in, if you were in China, the way that you legitimized your teachings was to say, well, these teachings come from India. And then in Japan, the way that you legitimize your teachings was to say, well, these teachings came from China, right? But there's always a culture and a language that is far superior to your own in this history. That's what people have always believed. And so one way to uh, legitimize the Heart Sutra, obviously, was to translate it back into Sanskrit. And then everybody could say, oh, well, this is, this is Indian wisdom. Uh, and it's funny, but it's also, we, we're very guilty of this. right? It's very easy within the Zen world in the West to imagine that there's something kind of mystical happening in Japan, or that I've, I've heard people give entire Dharma talks on Japanese grammar and explaining that Japanese grammar lends itself to a deeper understanding of Buddhism. And therefore, if you're thinking in Japanese, you're thinking in a way that is more closely aligned with the Buddha, and that's garbage. It's interesting garbage. It's fun garbage, but it's garbage. Uh, we have to be careful about these tendencies in ourselves. And it's considered the, the one that we chant, the heart of great perfect wisdom sutra, is considered to be kind of the pith of the larger Prajnaparamita sutra, the great wisdom sutra, which is enormous. It takes up volumes and volumes and volumes. And I think I've described this before, but Temples will, uh, they'll do fundraisers so they can purchase this. Or in many temples, they have an old copy. And it will take up um, a, a good chunk of a wall, maybe. And it's just this sutra in little boxes. And then at certain points in the year, when people are wanting to kind of cultivate good fortune, monks will line up in front of the Buddha, and they have a little desk. And they'll have a bunch of volumes from this larger set. And everyone will chant the Heart Sutra together once. And then there's this kind of, ha! And everyone pulls out, all the monks pull out the first volume on top of their desk, and they fan it open. And the idea is that since there's no way on earth we're going to read this thing out loud, we, we air it, right? We make the sutra known. It's, it's kind of like the idea of a prayer flag, right? That when the wind blows through it, something is carried and so there's this fanning of the, the sutra, and then you close one up, and then, ah! and then you have someone picks up the next one, and you do, you do the next one. And it's very exciting. Um, and if you're me, it's also a very clumsy endeavor, because I have, I have dropped them many, many times. It's really hard to do. Um, that's the context of this. It's considered to be for many, the center of the center of the really, really, really long text about wisdom. Right? It's, it's that kind of thing. It's a seed. And it opens with this discussion of the five aggregates. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty and thus relieved all suffering that's a huge thing to do. All five aggregates refers to what we call the skandhas. 
the and as it is made very clear later, they are form sensations, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. And all of these come out of uh, what we might call Buddhist psychology, which I always feel if you're someone outside of Buddhism and you're looking in, if there's anything that should just blow your mind about the whole tradition, it's that from the very, very beginning, there was this incredible, meticulous research into the way that we experience experience. And that even now it reads in a way that is very similar to what in the last hundred years we have come to call psychology. And it makes sense. You know, if, if, the, if one of the first things that came out of the Buddha's mouth was that everyone experiences this kind of uh, chronic dissatisfaction, right? what he was saying was, I recognize something that's fundamental about the way that we experience the world. And so I think it, it makes a lot of sense that later generations sat down and said, well, let's keep looking at that. Let's try to break that down as much as we can. So in these five skandhas, we have uh, form, sensations, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Form is what we start with, right? There's form. And then consciousness can be defined according to different traditions in different ways. It can be almost like a Buddha nature, something that is is cosmic and, and universal. Or it can also be just kind of an over... Uh, arching uh, kind of umbrella of, of human experience. And the idea is that when form and consciousness have an encounter, which is to say when you encounter the world of form, that you then have a sensation. And that, and that sensation exists without being named. Right? It exists without you thinking about it. There's a moment when you touch the hot stove, when you have the sensation of the hot stove without thinking hot and oops and all these things, right? And then following immediately, usually immediately following the sensation is perception, which is when you notice that you did that. And then mental formation is the floodgate that's opened after that in which you start to think about it. And you say, this is hot and I'm an idiot, or why is the stove on, or that's going to take a long time to heal, or all these things. So it's, it's kind of a sandwich between form and consciousness. There's this, this thing that happens with sensation, perception, and formation. It's happening constantly. It's happening right now as we're sitting here. I think just this, this idea of the, the encounter between form and consciousness is huge because it really points to the, uh, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound question, which I w- will leave there. <laughs> but it's the idea that, that there must be an encounter between consciousness and form for all these other things 
to come into play is actually a really sophisticated place to start understanding your own experience. Nothing comes from nothing. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. So we know right away that emptiness is going to be a big deal. And we're starting with form. And then he says, form itself is emptiness, emptiness itself form. Sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness are also like this. So we're establishing a math. And there's a lot of this kind of language in especially foundational Buddhism, where we're laying out that A equals B, and therefore B equals A. And if A equals B and A equals C, then B equals C, that kind of thing. So if form itself is emptiness and emptiness itself form, then we're being told that sensation itself is emptiness and emptiness itself is sensation and on and on and on. And this is a very, very Buddhism specific way of saying everything is emptiness, right? It's, it's trying to cover all the bases and it's speaking in a language that people at, at the time that this was written would have understood perfectly well because this is kind of Buddhism 101. The skandhas are kind of basic uh, understanding of how we are formed as experiential beings. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease, are def- neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Therefore, given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, And then we get into the next list, which just starts to feel redundant. But it's also speaking directly to basic teachings. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind. These are what are called the 12 ayatanas. And these are, uh, the best translation I could find was sense bases. And there's an internal set and an external set. Which is very clear, right? There's eyes and sight. That's a set. There's the internal and the external. Uh, We have eyesight, ear sound, nose smell, tongue taste, body touch, and mind and objects of mind. Mind is always listed as a sixth sense in Buddhism with some really interesting teachings that come out of that. Uh, For example, and this would take us in a very long and interesting other direction. The idea that mind is not what creates thought, it's the organ that recognizes it. Which is the kind of thing that, uh, for me at least, can send me into a spiral of confusion. Then... After we've listed this, then we say no realm of sight, no realm of mind consciousness. These are bookends on another set. This set is 18 long, which is why they didn't list it. I can assume that they had a little poetic moment and decided we don't have to do the whole list. Of the 18 datus, uh, which are based on the ayatanas, um, and each of these six sets are then broken into three parts. So six times three, we get 18. And that means that, uh, and without going into that, the sutra is using shorthand 
here by just mentioning the first one and the last one. So again, anyone who is familiar with this, they'd hear no realm of sight, no realm of mind consciousness. And it's just saying, oh yeah, he's saying, well, it's none of those things either. All of these things that we consider to be the basic building blocks of experience, which is all that's being talked about here, are emptiness. There is neither ignorance nor extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death nor extinction of old age and death. This is a reference to the, the, what are called the 12 nidanas, which are the links in the 12-fold chain of causation, which I never remember, but at one point memorized because I was sure that I would have to be able to just pull it out at an instant to prove that I was really Buddhist. Uh, Buddhism has too many lists. Uh, so this is also shorthand. It's, it's just talking about the beginning and the end of this 12-fold chain. And then, even if we have only a very passing knowledge of Buddhism, we get to the great line, in a way, in the, in the Heart Sutra, where we realize that we're talking about something really, really basic. Because he says, I, I keep saying he, no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, which is a Four Noble Truths. Right. That all experience is suffering, that there's a cause of suffering, that there's a way to go beyond that suffering, and that there's a path by which you can do that. And so then the author of this piece is saying, even this, even the most basic thing, the thing that you think, the, 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 the critical Jenga piece of Buddhism, that if you pull this out, the whole thing crumbles. Even this is not concrete. Even this does not hold up to the scrutiny of emptiness. And then it goes on. And it becomes this, this kind of beautiful statement about uh, what happens when you enter into this deep wisdom. What's so fascinating about this to me uh, is that all of this is talking about even though it's, it's speaking in a kind of radical way and, it's, and it's, it's pointing to all these other teachings, it's also speaking from, of course, a very fundamental teaching. It's speaking from the third seal of Buddhism, right? which is that nothing has an inherent existence. This is, this is the, the conversation about emptiness. That nothing has... One way we can say that nothing is independent of anything else. But also that nothing is free of impermanence, for example. That absolutely everything is composed of this one thing that is not composed of anything, which is emptiness. So even though it's almost the most basic 
thing we can say about Buddhism. It's really, really hard. Really hard. It's about signified and signifier. Right? That what we call reality is not the same as reality. It's limited, always. In the same way that whatever you call, however you understand your best friend, is a very narrow and hopefully loving projection of your own onto someone who is infinitely complex and you'd never get to know, right? But you can kind of create a container for that person that's useful, right? When we read about quantum physics and we find that when you go, you know, inside atoms and then go inside the parts of atoms and then suddenly you find that it's just a huge empty room. It's really important, I think, to investigate that view, but at the same time, it's a view that's almost impossible to carry in that form all the time, right? It's one of the challenges that we're posed with. What does it mean to look at a table and imagine not or recognize that on one level, that table is not what it appears to be at all. To what degree is that skillful? How does it make you skillful to hold that view? I think it's easier easier for us to understand when we're dealing with relationships how beneficial it can be to recognize the emptiness of others. But when we take it to whether or not there's a floor as we understand it, it's not that it's not beneficial, but, but the questions are a little bit different in terms of how that, that defines our relationship. Again, it's this form and consciousness. So one of the central messages of Buddhism, and it comes up here and it comes up in the third seal, is that though Buddhism is a body of teachings and I, hopefully a body of teachings which are true, that truth itself exists completely outside of Buddhism, right? That Buddhism does not rely on, I mean, truth does not rely on Buddhism at all. <laughs> and it doesn't rely on the names that Buddhism has given it at all. It just is what it is. Attachment to a name, attachment to an idea, is a hindrance. And we're told that here, that with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajnaparamita, and thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there is no fear. A hindrance is an attachment. And a fear, or the state of fear, is the state of imagining that you have something to lose. Right? Here we're defining a bodhisattva in a very big way as being someone who has nothing to lose. Except here it's written as nothing to attain. Same thing. And therefore is without attachment. All Buddhas of past, present, and future rely on Prajnaparamita. They rely on this wisdom, this view, and thereby attain unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment.
which here is being equated almost directly with being beyond attachment. It sounds really huge when we describe it as the unsurpassed, greatest, deepest, biggest wisdom in the world. But, but in fact, the sutra is giving a name to something that we've already heard about many, many times, which is this, this question that's brought up in the Four Noble Truths of just letting go of attachment, which is the same as letting go of fear. And then, this is the conversation, this is what led to this, me talking about this today. Uh, we get to this thing at the end. It says, therefore, know the Prajnaparamita as the great miraculous mantra, the great bright mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomparable mantra, which removes all suffering and is true, not false. Gate gate paragate parasam gate bodhisvaha. This is sort of Sanskrit, but it's not grammatical Sanskrit. Uh, there's no way to actually make sense of this as a sentence, but we can kind of basically get the gist of it. And that's fine because mantras aren't intended to be necessarily understood as text in the mind. But the way that I usually hear this translated, and there are always lots of little variations, is gone, gone, gone beyond, gone to the other shore, meaning completely gone. Hail awakening, which is Bodhi. And I don't know what we're supposed to do with it. Uh, I had not given it a whole lot of thought, but the question came up, and and I I had to go back and ask myself, have I ever heard this mantra used anywhere outside of the end of this sutra? In any ceremony in Japan, ever? Is there any context in which someone pulls out the absolute most important mantra in the world that will remove all suffering. No. Even though you'd think it would be really your go-to mantra. And I think we're just left with this interesting question about it. Maybe we can understand this if we want to, as just simply meaning that, that the wisdom being described here you know, meets all these superlative adjectives. But, but we're handed this, this line of text at the end. And it's where we finish. It's where we end. And it's, it's a kind of baggage. <laughs> You could walk down the street and you could chant it, but there's absolutely nothing in Zen practice that supports doing that kind of practice, that kind of mantra work. 
some traditions, obviously, that chant the sutra could could support that, but but it's just this big question mark hanging out in space. I think the sutra makes a whole lot of sense until therefore. <laughs> it's fairly straightforward. Uh, I don't know. But as I said, I, I think we're handed within the, this practice a really interesting, if not paradox, a, a, a kind of a, a bi-directional path wherein we memorize this you will memorize this if you do it enough times. There's no question. And it will become a part of your brain. We memorize it and we say it out loud with real spirit over and over and over again. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we see what it is telling us to see it doesn't necessarily mean that we understand it at all. And as I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're being asked to understand which line is about the 18 datus and which line is about the 12 ayatanas. It's it's kind of personal and very open-ended. It's something that is handed to you over a period of time. And you find that you can't shake it off after a while. And that at least in my experience words within the text become uh, words that appear in bold in your life. And so someone says ignorance. And for me, I hear the part of the, the sutra that's talking about ignorance. And if someone talks about sensation, it's very difficult for me to have a conversation that includes the word sensation without thinking. But there is no sensation and no perception and no... right. And that, I think, in many ways, is exactly what's supposed to happen. But the fruit of that, no one says what that's supposed to be. Which I guess is true of all of it. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.